Matthew chapter 5. There is a very dangerous trap that thousands upon thousands and millions upon millions of people have fallen into and fall into. This trap is a trap of where you have the right answers, but you don't have the right standing with God. And the trap and the snare is that you confuse the two. You think that the right answers is equal to a right standing with God. The trap is where we think head knowledge is equal to heart change. Where learning about God is the same thing as loving God. Knowing about the faith is the same thing as having faith. This is a great trap. It's a great trap faced by anyone who's been brought up in church. It's a great trap faced for our kids in Awana in Sunday school right now. Where right answers and head knowledge and learning about God and knowing about the faith is equated with a right standing, heart change, loving God and having faith. Does this mean we stop Awana and we stop teaching kids the Bible? Of course not. But we must not ever confuse the two. This is what I would call the trap of mere Bible knowledge. The trap of mere Bible knowledge. And in the days of Jesus, it was a trap that the scribes had fallen into. These legal experts of the Bible, these scholars who spent all day every day studying the Torah and the Pentateuch and the writings of uh, other so-called godly men. And they'd fallen into this snare of the trap of mere Bible knowledge and thought that that made them have a good standing with God. But there's another pit right beside that one. Maybe you get out of that pit and you stumble into this one. It is what I will call the trap of moralism. This is where a skin-deep morality, an outward morality, is equated with real righteousness from a renewed heart. This is the person who says, well, I've never murdered and I didn't commit adultery and I haven't committed adultery. And, hey, I actually go to church and I tithe and I serve every once in a while. So, yeah, I'm good. I'm equating not doing certain things and doing other things that look religious and look impressive on the outside. I'm equating that with a good standing with God. This is the trap of moralism. The reality for that person is their morality is a Hollywood set. It's a facade. It's a Hollywood set because when no one is actually watching, when the lights are turned off and when they're all alone, what you find often where there's only skin-deep morality, is underneath the surface you find all manner of arrogance, anger, raging lust, criticism of others, all manner of self-righteousness and discrimination of others. The person with the Hollywood set without the reality is a person who is constantly judging and cutting on other people, selfish in all of their ways. And so all of the church and all of the tithing and all of the serving and all of that just simply becomes paint on rotting wood. It's perfume on a pig. It's just this skin deep outward morality to mask an inner corruption. And so when King Jesus came on the scene in the first century and when King Jesus comes on the scene now in a person's life, he blows up this outward morality and this trap of mere knowledge. He comes on the scene, blows up the Hollywood set, and systematically exposes sham righteousness, fake righteousness, skin-deep righteousness. 
And this is the kind of righteousness that's in Pharisees. And there's a little bit of Pharisee or a lot of Pharisee in all of us. Jesus came on the scene in the Sermon on the Mount to blow this up. He comes on the scene now in your life and my life by His Spirit to blow this up. There's nothing that God hates more than self-righteousness. There's nothing that God hates more than a hypocritical sham of a of life. And Jesus did this in particular in the Sermon on the Mount, and especially in chapter 5, in this section of chapter 5, verse 20 to 48. And so today I want to present to you what I'm calling surpassing righteousness. You see what I did there? <laughs> so look at verse 20 of Matthew chapter 5. Verse 20 tells us in the words of Jesus, For I say to you that unless your, what's the word? Righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, uh, the people with mere Bible knowledge and the moralists. Unless it surpasses them, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And so he's going to present, beginning in verse 21 through the end of the chapter, six examples of what he has in mind. Six examples of this surpassing righteousness, a righteousness that goes beyond what these Bible heads and moralists possessed. But it's also a passing righteousness, if you will. It's the kind of righteousness that demonstrates that we have passed or that we will enter the kingdom of heaven. And we'll unpack that more as we go. Now, if you've been with us, you may be thinking, wait a minute, haven't we covered this already? <laughs> well, yes, we have. Matthew five twenty to 48 is one giant unit of thought. And it has six examples that are clearly marked out for us. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you six times. And if you've been with us, we've gone through each of those six examples, one at a time. They're on our website. But because of schedules and vacations and elders preaching and various things like that, it has not been exactly consecutive. Ideally, we would have gone through all six consecutive weeks, but it's been very choppy. It's been very disconnected. It, that that has not certainly been the case, and I wish that it could have been the case, but it wasn't the case. And so today, I want to put my arms around all six of them in one message. It's also a great likelihood that there's very few people here right now that have been here for all six of these. Because they came sporadically through the summer. And so we'll get them all at once. If you want more, we're not going to be able to obviously preach all six messages again. Again, they're on our website. You can find that there from the live stream. So, again, this is one big unit of thought. Here is the big idea this morning. Here's the big idea of this great passage. Jesus calls his disciples to a personal, personal life of righteousness that surpasses mere Bible knowledge and moralism. This life, this life of righteousness gives evidence of salvation. It does not earn salvation. It does not move you one step closer to God Apart from his work of grace in your life and changing your heart, it gives that evidence, that fruit, that proof, that demonstration of that salvation that's already taken place. The mere Bible knowledge represents the scribes. The moralism represents the Pharisees. Every sermon needs a purpose. The purpose of this sermon is simply this. That you would judge yourself this morning and you would ask yourself, am I a disciple or a Pharisee? The purpose of the sermon this morning is to encourage disciples and expose Pharisees. 
So let's go through these six examples, one at a time. And with that question in mind, lingering over each example, as we examine ourselves, as we judge ourselves. You know, the Bible says if you will judge yourself, you will not be judged. We're not to judge one another. We're not to judge God. We are to take God's word and judge ourselves by the aid of his spirit, by the aid of his word. And so the word of God becomes for us a mirror. What are we? What do we look like? What is the true nature of our heart before God? And there's lots of ways to answer that question, lots of ways to probe the reality of our standing with God. And the way we're going to do it this morning is we're going to look at, is there this evidence of this true and personal and private righteousness? And I look in the mirror of God's word and you look in the mirror of God's word and we ask God to show us who we are before him. That is the objective this morning. All right. So number one on this list of six examples, and I've reworded these a little bit as uh, from when we preached them just to maybe help them be a little fresher. Number one, disciples seek, disciples pursue, and disciples want horizontal harmony before the worship of God. The disciples set a priority in their life because God sets this priority that I will have horizontal harmony with my brothers and sisters in Christ before I come to worship God. Let's read the text in verse uh, 21 to 24 of chapter 5. Jesus says, you have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court or the Sanhedrin. And whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Therefore, because that's true, therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, if you're in the very act of worshiping God at the altar at the temple, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, Jesus says, stop everything, verse 24, leave your offering there before the altar and go, leave church, leave the temple, leave your offering, leave the altar, leave the place where God had manifested himself to the people of Israel behind that that veil in the Holy of Holies. Leave that place and go first be reconciled to your brother, reconcile, make peace with your brother and then come and present your offering and then come and sing your songs, then come and pray your prayers, then come and give your offering in the in the plate. Then come and worship God. Disciples seek horizontal harmony before they worship God. If we were to ask ourselves, where do I start? It's really easy. We start with our spouse. We start with our spouse in our home. Do I have horizontal harmony with my spouse? And that must be in place before I come to church and worship God. Because if it isn't, if I haven't done everything I can to have that horizontal harmony, if I haven't done everything I can to make peace with this most important person in my life, then my worship is nothing more than a sham. And God is not pleased with it. That's where we should start. And then we don't go far from there. We go next to our kids. We go next to our kids. See, this should revolutionize a lot of Sunday mornings. (laughs) It really should. If I'm at odds with my kids, kids, if you're at odds with your parents, if I'm at odds with my spouse, I've got to get all of this right. I've got to confess that sin to my kids if I've been harsh or angry or loud or out of control because of the Sunday morning chaos. I've got to get this right because God does not want to hear my songs until I do. 
We start with our spouse, we move to our kids, and then we move to our church members, our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And we think to ourselves, does anyone have anything against me in the body of Christ? Have I offended? Have I done something that would have me at odds with someone in this church? And have I done everything that I can to make that right, to be at peace with them? This is where to start. We so often lose sight of the obvious, don't we? And we're we're more worried about what others might think of us than the very people riding in the car with us to church. So that's that's the starting place of this, and it goes from there. I know this had to be a stunning revelation to Jesus' listeners, and it ought to be to us as well. Isn't this a stunning reorienting of priorities? I mean, in a sense, Jesus is saying in this verse that your horizontal harmony has a higher priority than the worship of God in that moment. In that moment. That's why he goes on to say, and then come. And then come. God's worship is a priority for us, of course. But it's a matter of our practice, right? Our practice of this kind of righteousness. Now, we contrast this with the Pharisee. And the heart of a Pharisee. The Pharisee is the person who curses others constantly under their breath. When they see them, when they think of them, when they're driving, when they're interacting, whatever. There's just this constant cutting and cursing and and even hatred for other people under the breath of the Pharisee. Not too loud, mind you, because they want to be seen as moral. And is the Pharisee, instead of making things right at home, that will criticize wife and children or husband and children without mercy. Nothing but a stream of continuous cutting criticism and then with no concern for the people they hurt. And so there's just this trail of people and then they come to church and then they raise their hands and then they sing their songs to God. That's the Pharisee, you see. They don't really care about horizontal harmony. They just care about appearances. So ask yourself, am I a disciple? Or a Pharisee? Am I looking into God's Word this morning? Am I a follower of Christ with the heart of Christ, with a desire to reconcile, with a desire to be at peace, that a person that hates conflict, a person that despises being at odds with someone else, or, or am I this person who just, who thrives on it, loves it, looks for it, and is constantly cutting and criticizing others? Disciple? Or no disciple? Number two, disciples fight sin like heaven depended on it. Disciples fight and war with sin, inner sin, personal sin, private sin, like heaven depended on it. Look at verse 27. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. So he goes from the command against murder to the command against adultery. Verse 28, but I say to you, the authoritative King Jesus says to us, that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Verse 29, if your right eye, this eye that looked, makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you, for it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you, for it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. This is Jesus saying, disciples fight sin as if heaven depended on it. This is a radical war that we are at with sin. 
that we're in. And he's calling us here to a radical and relentless fight against indwelling sin in our own hearts and souls. What kind of sins? Secret sins. Personal sins. Private sins. You know, the look, the glance, the thought, the things that people can't see. Jesus here is addressing sexual sins and sexual lusts of all kinds. He's addressing pornography. He's addressing TV shows and movies that we have no business watching. He's addressing music that we have no business listening to. An application would be the endless stream of clickbait that confronts us every time we're on the internet, every time we're on our phones. Jesus here is addressing drinking to drunkenness that is done in private and done in secret. He is addressing gluttony that is done in private and done in secret. He is addressing our thought life. When we forget that God reads us like a book moment by moment. The disciple realizes all of this. The disciple understands the war that they're in. The disciple understands that they're a couple of steps away from adultery. A disciple understands that this is a war and it must fight, it must have boundaries, it must have protections. This is a Christian life. It's not easy. It's war. It's a battle all the time. We need help. We need God's spirit. We need God's word. We need God's people. We need the church. We can't do this alone. Disciples understand this. And we fight like heaven depends on it. Because the word of God says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And the Bible says, without sanctification, no one will see the Lord. Does this sanctification earn our salvation? No, it is the evidence that we are saved. The fight is the evidence. If you become a Christian here today, I want to welcome you to the battlefield. I'm not welcoming you to a life of ease. I'm not welcoming you to a life of uh, of petals of roses, a fluffy pillow, and an easy life. I'm, I'm, I'm offering to you and I'm calling you to the hardest life you could ever live in this world. That will be infinitely worth it when it's all said and done. But it's not a life of health, wealth, and prosperity. It is a life of fighting sin, hating sin, relentless Warring against sin. And how different this is from the Pharisee. The Pharisee lives by the motto, it doesn't hurt to look. The Pharisee lives by the motto, what I do in the privacy of my own home is none of your business. Now there's a measure of truth there. But there is also a great lie there. Yeah, it is your business and it's my business because we're connected in Christ and the body of Christ. And what we do in the privacy of our own homes is ultimately everybody's business. And ultimately, private secret sins don't stay, don't stay private and secret. They come out. The Pharisee, instead of fighting secret sins, the Pharisee simply marshals excuses. They marshal justification and rationalization for their Improprieties and indiscretions. Instead of self-denial, instead of tearing out the eye, instead of cutting off the hand, the Pharisee indulges the flesh. The Pharisee pampers the flesh. The Pharisee feeds the flesh. Because the Pharisee doesn't understand that his or her own flesh is the problem. Look at God's Word and ask yourself, Am I a disciple? On a narrow road, or am I a Pharisee, letting my flesh have its way? Number three, 
Disciples honor their marriage vows. These go hand in hand, don't they? The fighting of sin, especially the fighting of lust and adultery, goes hand in hand with the desire, now on a positive side, to honor our marriage vows, our commitment to the Lord. Look at chapter 5, verse 31. It was said, whoever sends his wife away, that's a code for a divorce, let him give her a certificate of divorce. And so in their day and age, the, the husband had all control in this. The wife didn't. And the husband could just say, whatever reason, you've displeased me. I'm sending you away. I'm kicking you to the curb. And all I have to do is write this writ of divorce, give this reason, sign it, hand it to you, and send you away. And for that woman in that case, she was in dire straits at that point. Uh, it would be like a single mom today losing her job. She has to have another job. The, the women in that day, in that situation, have to be married. <laughs> this is their provi- provision and protection. And so when the husband would do such a thing, he is causing her to commit adultery because she has to go remarry to survive. This is not a preference issue. This is a survival issue. And so Jesus says, verse 32, I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except for the reason of unchastity or sexual infidelity, if that's not the reason and you divorce your wife, then you make her commit adultery because she's going to remarry. And that's adultery. And whoever marries her, whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. If we were to take this and and turn it into the positive, then he's basically saying, honor your marriage vows. This is what disciples do. It's what they long for. It's what they strive after. Uh, The the, the path here for the disciple is stay married and stay faithful. You remember that sermon? I said that over and over. Stay married and stay faithful. That's what the disciple seeks. and, And this then avoids the causing of adultery. There's really something beneath the surface here, though. What Jesus is calling the the male disciples here especially to is a life that honors women. This is a life that honors women. And especially the woman you've chosen as your wife for life. Honor those marriage vows. They are meaningful. God heard them. You, You swore them in the presence of witnesses, especially God. The heart of a Pharisee, though, goes like this. Divorce is always an option. I entered into it thinking that. Divorce is no big deal. And if I have been divorced, it wasn't my fault anyway. She had to go. She needed to go. In fact, the heart of a Pharisee is women are second class citizens. Are you a disciple? Are you a Pharisee? What's your view of marriage? Is it the view Jesus had? Holy and sanctified and created by God. And the most important human relationship you will ever have on this earth. The most important human relationship you can ever have. You're not married to your parents. You're not married to your sister. You're not married to your kids. You're not one flesh but with one other person. And God says, let it be until death parts you. That's the heartbeat, the desire, the pursuit of the disciple. Number four. Number four. Disciples drop the camouflaging God talk. 
Disciples drop, they discard, they jettison the camouflaging God talk. Look at verse 33 to 37. Again, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. These verbal vows, these promises. Verse 34, but I say to you, make no oath at all. Either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Uh, The white hair in the Jewish day would be someone with much wisdom. It's an elderly person. They all started with black hair, or black would indicate youth and vigor and strength. And you can't do either one. Verse 37, but let your statement be, I like this translation. Simply yes or simply no. And anything beyond this is of the evil one. Anything beyond this is of the evil one. So what Jesus is really calling the disciple here too is a life of honesty, a life of integrity. You don't have to make these grandiose promises and vows and call God as like he's your witness to everything you say because your word counts for it. People know that you're honest. People know that you keep your word because you've cultivated that in your lifestyle. This is the life of a follower of Christ. I don't need to swear by heaven or by the throne or by earth or by by Jerusalem. God's in everything. God's everywhere. God knows my heart. I want to just live a life of integrity, a life of wholeness. And people see that and say, hey, I can trust what this person says. The Pharisee, though, has to have this God talk. The Pharisee has to cover up their lack of integrity with religious symbols An endless, what I would call, over-the-top God talk. Have you experienced this? Have you witnessed this? I can't stand it. It, uh, You're going, wow, you're a pastor. I thought this is really all you ever did. No, over-the-top God talk sickens me. What is the purpose of camouflage? The purpose of camouflage is to blend into your surroundings. The purpose of camouflage is to, is to appear to be something that you're not. And the heart of a Pharisee is, I'm not, so I have to, I want to appear that I am, I want to blend into my church surroundings, and so I cover myself with this camouflaging God talk. It's the fish on the business card of the most dishonest guy in town. Plastered all over their ads, all over the bumper stickers, constantly trying to tell the world, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian. It's the person that posts scripture all over Facebook, but when you get to know them, they cuss like a sailor. But they want people to think they're Christians because that's what works in Kerrville. (laughs) That's what goes over in the hill country. It's the person has all manner of Christian bumper stickers all over their car. And every conversation is God this and God that and God this and God that. You wonder if they could even have a normal conversation for crying out loud. As if they're trying to convince others or maybe they're trying to convince themselves of the reality of God. Jesus said of the Pharisee and of this kind of person, they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They honor me with their Facebook post, but their heart is far from me. They honor me with their bumper sticker, but their heart is far from me. Camouflaging God talk. Are you a disciple? 
Are you a Pharisee? I didn't say drop all God talk. Of course not. Drop the, I'm trying to appear to be something I'm not. Number five. Disciples turn the other cheek and go the extra mile. I want you to think about all six of these, but there will probably be one or two that stand out the most for you. I convict you. That certainly has been my experience as I've considered how these are convicting me. I think this is it, as of today anyway. Disciples turn the other cheek and go the extra mile. Give to those who ask. You know, if you mess with a disciple, there will be heaven to pay. You mess with a Pharisee and there will be hell to pay. This is how disciples roll. Mess with me and I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you back something that will be good for you. I'm going to not curse you, not hate you. I'm going to pray for you. Because disciples, like Jesus, turn the other cheek and go the extra mile. But not the Pharisee. The heart of the Pharisee is consumed with self. It's full of pride, not Jesus. Did you catch that? The heart of the Pharisee is full of pride, not Jesus. So when they are wrong, there's hell to pay, not heaven to pay. The Pharisee is more concerned about their self-preservation than the glory of God. The Pharisee is more concerned that other people serve them than that they serve others. They never turn the other cheek. Are you kidding? That's not in their vocabulary. It's not in their DNA. It's not in their reflex. No, Pharisees are miserly with their time, with compassion, with money, with help for others who are less fortunate. Why? Because those who are less fortunate deserve what they're getting. That's the heart of the Pharisee. They criticize them and judge them and say, well, you're getting exactly what you deserve. Instead of recognizing, no, I have been blessed, blessed, blessed. So many opportunities in my life that maybe this person hasn't had. Let's read the text, verse 38, 42. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Oh, the Pharisees love that verse. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on the right cheek, and you'll remember we said that's a backhand actually. Most people are right-handed. To slap on the right cheek is to backhand. This is a verbal insult with a backhand. It's not somebody trying to kill you. It's not somebody trying to take your head off. It's it's a verbal insult. Jesus says, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, doesn't say your house, your, your ox, your whole farm, your whole family, your whole business. He says, if someone wants to take your shirt, let him have your coat also. The Roman soldier comes and says, hey, you carry this for me. And he says, you got to carry this one mile, thousand steps, literally. Verse 41, we'll go ahead and carry it 2,000 steps. And how revolutionary would that have been in his day? They hated the Romans. They could not stand these occupiers in their land, these Jewish people. They, they were the infidels. They were the ones that should be... Have the wrath of God fall upon them. Jesus says to them, hey, when that Roman soldier comes up, taps you on the shoulder and says, carry my backpack for a mile. You say, oh, sir, can I please carry it for two miles? This was radical to these Jews of Jesus' day. It's radical for us as well. Disciple or no disciple? You judge yourself. Finally, number six. Disciples love their haters. 
Wow, it's like Jesus doesn't get easier, does he? <laughs> no, it just like it seems like each one gets harder and harder as you go. And he climaxes these six examples with this one about love, of course, the most important attribute of all in the Christian life. The most important uh, badge or mark that would show that we belong to Christ. Verse 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's what the scribes and Pharisees taught the people. That was tradition. But I say to you, love your enemies. Political enemies, doctrinal enemies. Thank you, Toby. (laughs) Financial enemies, neighborly enemies, family enemies. (laughs) You know, sometimes in marriage counseling, somebody will say, oh, you don't understand, Pastor. I know the Bible says I'm to love my wife as as Christ loved the church. But she has become my enemy. Oh, oh, okay, good. I'm glad to hear that. Because Jesus says to love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you. So that you may be come sons of your Father who is in heaven. Verse 45. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Praise the Lord. Life ends without sun and rain. Life ends for the planet without these two things. God in his common grace looks at all of this world and all of the sinners and all of his enemies and just says, here's the sunshine and here's the rain. Here's food. Here's life. That's what God does. Jesus says, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. The most despised people of their culture, the traitors, they do the same. And if you greet only your brothers... And only your sisters and only your friends and only those people that look like you and believe like you and act like you. If you greet only them, only friendly to them, what more have you done than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same, meaning the nations or the pagans, the unreligious, irreligious. Therefore, you are to be perfect or complete as your heavenly father is perfect. We looked at this last week. I'm not going to spend much time restating all that we looked at last Sunday. On the one side are disciples who love their haters. That's the reflex of their heart when hated, when persecuted, when despised. On the other side are Pharisees. And Pharisees, listen carefully, they hate all people who threaten their way of life. Who threaten their money. Who threaten their position. Who threaten their reputation. Who threaten their pride. A Pharisee hates that person. That's why they hated Jesus. He was a threat to their power, position, money, and reputation. He was a threat to their precious way of life, and they hated him for it. And that is the heart of a Pharisee. Oh, they pray for their enemies, all right. They pray God's wrath would fall upon them. A Pharisee's friends look like them, believe like them, act like them. A Pharisee has little or no interaction with unbelievers. A Pharisee is good at religion, they're good at church, they're good at Bible studies, they're not so good at loving their neighbor and loving their enemies alike. Disciple or no disciple? Six probing, penetrating examples of personal, private, real righteousness, not outward morality, not mere Bible knowledge, real righteousness that encourages a true disciple. Says, yes, those things are present in my life. I can see them faintly. They are there. God, may they grow. May they expand. 
There's a long way to go to be Christ-like, but I can see glimpses of all six of these in my heart and in my life. And that should encourage the disciple this morning as you look into the mirror of God's Word. But six penetrating personal examples then on the flip side that would expose the Pharisee. The proud, the self-righteous, the angry, the lustful, the controlling, the critical, the judgmental. And these six examples Jesus gives us are not here for us to earn our salvation, to give us a checklist and say, well, if I can do all six of these in a good enough way, the scales will tip in my favor and God will let me in. That's not why they're here. They're here to give us an evidence of salvation. What does it look like? They're here to show us a surpassing righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees and a passing righteousness possessed, listen, by the people who are going to enter the kingdom of heaven. That's why I say a passing righteousness. The Bible says without holiness, no one will see the Lord. So what's the verdict? You're your own jury. You're your own judge this morning. Judge yourself lest you be judged by Almighty God. He's spoken his word through his son. Judge yourself this morning. What is the verdict? You're either a disciple or you're a Pharisee. There is no gray. There's no middle ground. There's no third option. You're either a disciple and you're growing in these things or you're a Pharisee and they're foreign to your heart and experience in life. That is the reality. And God is asking you right now, listen to me now. Listen to me, children. Listen to me, teenagers. Listen to me, church member. God is asking you right now, you need to return the verdict on your own life. Before you stand before Him and the verdict and the punishment is set forever and ever and ever. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the time to look deep inside your heart and look at the Word of God and return the verdict on your heart. Are you a disciple following the Lord? Or do you just honor him with your lips and your heart is actually far from him? Your Sunday looks like a Christian. Your Monday to Saturday does not. So I want to talk to the Pharisee. You've judged yourself and you've returned the verdict and you've said in your heart of hearts, Pharisee, I have just been exposed. I have just been described. I want to give you hope this morning. Is there hope for the Pharisee? You bet there is. There's an, there's an amazing amount of hope for all Pharisees. I want to call you this morning to call on the one, verses 21 to 24, call on the one who offered himself on the altar of the cross in pursuit of reconciliation with you. See, Jesus called us to have horizontal harmony and be reconciled with one another before we worship God. Well, Jesus came on a mission of reconciliation. He was an ambassador of reconciliation. He offered his own life and body on the altar of God's cross that he might pursue a relationship with you. Amen. Hallelujah. He is all about reconciling Pharisees to himself. And he did the work necessary. Call on him this morning if you found yourself to be that Pharisee. Call on the one who was thrown into hell, if you will, to conquer your lust, to make war with your sin, to defeat it and crush it at the cross. He said, if your right hand makes you stumble, tear it off. It's better than that, than your whole body be thrown into hell. Well, his whole body was thrown on a cross. And it was as if he was thrown into hell so that he might go to war with our sin. Hallelujah. 
He crushed it at the cross. He crushed it at the resurrection. And He frees Pharisees from slavery to sin. Call on Him this morning and you will be set free. I want to call you this morning to trust in the one, the only one, who will never send His wife away. He will never write His church a certificate of divorce. He will never abandon us. He said, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. That's the words of our husband. That's the words of our bridegroom. Christ is our bridegroom for the whole church, and he will never send us away. In other words, call and trust in the one who is faithful. You are not faithful. God is faithful. Christ is faithful. I want to ask you this morning to look to the God-man. Look to the God-man who turned the other cheek, literally. Plucking out his beard, slapping him in the face, beating him with sticks, and he stood there and took it for us. Look to the God-man who went the extra mile. After being scourged and beaten... They put this cross beam on his back that could have weighed 125 pounds. It may have weighed as much as he weighed. He was probably about 5'2", 120, 130 pounds. And now after being up all night long, after being scourged with a whip, they say, you've got to carry this. And he carried it until he could carry it no longer. He walked the extra mile. He went the Calvary Road all the way to the cross. we got to look to the God man this morning. The one who did the impossible and after carrying that cross and walking that robe, that road, he, he gave up his shirt. He gave up his cloak. He gave up his robe. He gave up his belt. He gave up his sandals. He gave up his turban. They stripped him naked and hammered him there so that you and I might be clothed, right? So that we might have righteousness, not our own, through Christ. We gotta look to him. We gotta look to the one who did that. If you're a Pharisee today, your only hope is simply this. You need to repent of all of the known sin in your life. And you need to trust in God's Son, God's only Son, the Teacher, the King, the Messiah. The only hope for a Pharisee and the only hope for anyone is to become a follower of the one who kept this whole passage. He did all of this. He was the model and example of all of it right down the line. He alone can go to these six examples of personal perfect righteousness and he can check every box. He alone was perfect as his heavenly father was perfect. We must look to him and him alone. If you've already done that, then the task before us as disciples is to grow in him, right? The task for us is to pursue him and become more like him. We're after making disciples or followers and those are people who seek to keep his commands we're going to sing a closing song now so come on up toby and uh, get ready to lead us in this it's called may the mind of christ our savior and it's just a great song to call us to cultivate the mind and life of christ as a disciple i pray you'd sing it as a prayer this morning as we close our service